Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Friday, April 1st. Coming up, we'll give you a preview of next week's school board elections. Plus, the University of Kansas has made it to the final four of the NCAA men's basketball tournament this year. But first, some headlines. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly says the state will downgrade its emergency response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Dylan Lyson of the Kansas News Service reports. In her announcement, Kelly said Kansas will soon shift to a new normal of viewing COVID-19 as an endemic virus. That means Kansas will treat the virus like other recurring diseases, such as the flu. Kelly says the pandemic isn't over, but officials have learned over the last two years how to reduce the spread of the virus. The state will continue to offer testing and vaccinations. The change comes as cases for COVID-19 in Kansas continue to fall after a major spike at the beginning of the year. Kansas City has agreed to pay a $2 million settlement in an overtime lawsuit brought by Kansas City firefighters. KCUR's Dan Margulies reports. The settlement resolves a federal lawsuit brought more than three years ago. The suit alleges the city failed to include so-called specialty pay on the firefighters' regular rate of pay, violating a 2015 collective bargaining agreement. The city denies wrongdoing. The settlement money will be shared by 383 affected firefighters. Their compensation will depend on overtime hours they worked between January 2016 and April 2021. Several school districts in Kansas City will have elections for their school boards on Tuesday, April 5th, including Liberty, Lee Summit, Park Hill, Independence, North Kansas City, Raytown, and Blue Springs. These elections could have a big impact on school budgets and policies and the superintendent of each district. Education reporter Maria Benevento has been covering those races for nonprofit news website The Kansas City Beacon. She joined me over Zoom to tell me how the pandemic and politics have affected this year's school board elections. So you sent out questionnaires to school board candidates in several districts around the area. What are some major themes you saw among the responses? Um, I think one of them is communication. Like as we have heard or have seen, I guess, a lot of parents in certain districts coming to school board meetings and talking about different issues that are upsetting for them. I think some school board members are campaigning on the idea that they will listen to those parents so that they'll, you know, do a better job of actually not just like hearing what they say, but responding back to them um, or acting on the feedback that they get from parents. Another aspect of communication is just that, you know, candidates are saying that they'll do a better job of explaining to parents what is going on with their children or what is happening in the district. And then in terms of other issues, one that I have seen come up across multiple districts is transparency. Obviously that means different things to different people, but one district that has come up, for example, is in Independence where the school board does not live stream or record the meetings. And so some candidates are arguing that it should and that it would be easier for parents to access and see what is going on 
if they could watch a recording of the meeting, even if they're not able to be there in person. So one thing that I've noticed this year is there's been a lot of stories about state legislatures and parents pushing for schools and and teachers to release more information about uh, their curricula. I'm wondering, has that had any impact on school board elections in this area? Yeah, I think one thing I've seen that's along those lines is not necessarily about curriculum, but in the Liberty School Board race, there are a couple of candidates that are uh, talking a lot about wanting to bring parents' voice back into education. And from reading their responses and talking with them, I think one of the concerns is that, you know, we've seen some controversy over certain books that are included in libraries. Um, And so one candidate had told me that he wanted to... um, he, you know, you wondered if the schools could could develop some kind of like, almost like a rating or like catalog system of books so that parents could set like what they're willing for their children to access. Like rather than removing a book entirely, the parents would have more control over if their children could read it or not. So we've recently seen a number of cultural battles take place in local school districts, including controversies over mask requirements, library books, and diversity and equity. I've noticed that opinions on those issues have been divided along political lines a lot of the time. I'm wondering what role have those very politicized issues played in local school board elections, if at all? Yeah, I think there are there are definitely some districts where you can see those playing a role. For example, in Liberty, one candidate had specifically told me that he felt like even though school board members are nonpartisan, but he still felt like you know he could he could kind of estimate where people's um, political leanings were, and he felt like it was six liberals to one conservative, which he did not feel like reflected um, the balance of political opinion in the district. So in that case, he's kind of explicitly willing to say that he would like to bring more conservative values into the district. What impact has the pandemic had on school board elections? The pandemic helped get more people aware of what is going on in schools. Some of the candidates I talked to became more active in public schools during the pandemic either because they were um, maybe upset about mask mandates or they were in favor of mask mandates and felt the need to like jump in and, you know, defend their school from some of the criticism that they were seeing. You know, now that they were involved, they wanted to be a more like positive, supportive presence for public schools. Another candidate that I spoke to was involved in a in organizing a movement called Let Them Play to like encourage school districts to keep sports going during the pandemic. That was kind of how he built connections who then encouraged him to run in the school board race. So I think it's it's kind of like raised the attention on public schools and um, maybe made more people like interested in running for school board that wouldn't have paid that much attention in the past. So I noticed that student mental health was one issue that came up in in some of the answers. I'm wondering, what did some candidates say about that? Quite a few of them just said that it was a priority. I'm trying to think if very many of them went into a lot of detail about how specifically they wanted to improve student mental health, but I got the sense that they wanted to find ways to partner with different organizations that could support students' mental health and that they were really like willing to put resources behind it as one of the the several things that they're most willing to prioritize. So why should people vote in their local school board elections, even if they don't have kids? I would say just because like schools are 
forming your, your, your neighbors and the people that live in your area, quite a few of them are going to be a product of public schools. And so making sure they have a quality education um, and that the districts are acting in line with their values is going to be relevant for you, even if you don't have children in public schools right now. So how can people vote on Tuesday? So basically, if you don't know your polling place already, you can look it up on the Missouri Secretary of State's website. And then you can vote anytime between 6 a.m. and 7 p.m. on April 5th. And if you're in line at 7 p.m., you can stay in line and still vote. That was Kansas City Beacon reporter Maria Benevento. You can find Maria's guides to local school board elections at thebeacon.media. Hey, thanks for listening to Kansas City Today. This daily news podcast is only possible thanks to you. As a nonprofit news station, KCUR relies on individual donations to make this podcast. So we don't rely on advertisers. We rely on you. If you haven't already, you can support our work with a donation of $5 or $10 a month at kcur.org support. And thanks. The University of Kansas is back in the final four of the NCAA men's basketball tournament this year. KCUR's Greg Eklund gives us this preview. This is KU's 16th trip to the final four and the fourth under head coach Bill Self. KU won the regional final last weekend in Chicago a city familiar to Self who previously served as the head coach at Illinois. When I was in, in, in Champaign, and of course we came to the city a lot, every time driving up and, and seeing the skyline, I used to think, man, there is some stuff getting done in this city. This is where action happens. But in 2003, Self made what he calls the right move when he came to succeed Roy Williams at Kansas. Since then, Self delivered what Roy Williams never could at Kansas, a national championship. And if COVID had not caused the 2020 tournament to be canceled, Self and his Kansas Jayhawks were the odds-on favorite to win another title. The memory of that year remains fresh with Christian Brown, the junior guard from Burlington. We all knew we were a pretty good team that year. Um, we were number one for a long time. Um, so, you know, for it to get canceled like that uh, kind of sucked. Then, after an early exit from the NCAA tournament last year, Self sought to upgrade the depth of his team. One key addition was guard Remy Martin, a transfer from Arizona State. As a freshman, Martin helped the Sun Devils beat KU at Allen Fieldhouse against the last Jayhawk team to make the Final Four in 2018. Uh, that was a big thing, and being in this crowd and getting a win and the environment, it was something that you know will stick with me to this day, and I'm always like, that will always be a memory of mine, and, and that's what this place does for you. A knee injury slowed Martin during the regular season, but he started to look like his old self at the Big 12 tournament, which he helped the Jayhawks win. Then in the NCAA tournament, he raised his level of play even higher and was named the most outstanding player of the Midwest region. I think it actually helped Remy too, um, watching throughout the season, watching how we play. That's teammate Ochai Agbaji, KU's leading scorer. Uh, when he when he's in the game and obviously in the in this postseason um, stretch, he's just brought brought a different dynamic offensively. Agbaji has been collecting postseason honors of his own this year, including first team All American. He's been KU's steadiest player all season. Not bad for someone who was supposed to sit out his first year at KU as a redshirt. Agbaji's father, Olofu, played college basketball at Wisconsin-Milwaukee after moving to the U.S. from Nigeria. 
but soccer was his first love, and it rubbed off on Ochai growing up. In soccer, he started out as a midfielder and as a flanker or winger, you know, wing. But when Ochai grew to become six foot five inches tall, he was moved to center back, which he didn't like. So he started to concentrate on basketball at Oak Park High School in Kansas City. From his raw athletic abilities as a KU freshman to a refined guard as a senior, Ochai says his play is worlds apart. Since uh, since I stepped foot on campus, um, you know, obviously I had confidence, but I was under a lot of recruits and all that high high major recruits and all that. But um, I just continued to keep working, and that uh, that built my confidence over time. The Jayhawks now return to New Orleans, the same place they reached the title game in 2012. That year they fell short and lost to Kentucky. The Kentucky Wildcats were bounced early from this year's tournament, but now the Jayhawks are facing a different Wildcat, the Villanova Wildcats, a number two seed. Nova has been a thorn in the side of the Kansas Jayhawks in recent NCAA tournaments beating KU at the Final Four in 2018 and at a regional final in 2016. KU is the last remaining number one seed. Recent history is on Nova's side, but the law of averages favors Kansas. Will this third time be the charm for KU? Tune in Saturday to find out. I'm Greg Eklund. Tip-off for the KU-Villanova game is set for Saturday evening in New Orleans. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Inujia Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Greg's story about KU in the Final Four, visit KCUR.org, where you can find more local news stories from Kansas City's NPR station. On Monday, we'll take our usual look at what's going on in the Kansas and Missouri legislatures. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.